Hi, I'm Liz Gross, CEO of Campus Sonar. Welcome to the ALP. Welcome to the ALP, the Admissions Leadership Podcast, a series of one-on-one conversations with people who have been climbing the leadership mountain in college admissions. Some are nearing the summit, some are already there, but how did they get there? And what can other climbers learn from their mindsets, habits, and experiences? I'm your host, Ken Anselman, VP for Enrollment at Lawrence University and the Dan Saraceno Chair of Enrollment Management for RHB. And as you heard at the top, with me today is my friend, Liz Gross. Liz, welcome to the ALP. Thanks, Ken. I'm excited to be welcomed to this very exclusive podcast. I, I can just hear the excitement popping off your voice right now. I'm trying um, to contain myself for your view, <laughs> your listeners' benefit. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, apologies at the top here. Uh, my neighbor has decided to uh, start chopping down trees in their backyard and has a chainsaw and a wood chipper. So you may hear occasionally some weird buzzing sound. Nothing to be alarmed of. Um, you know, it's just people doing what they do up here in Wisconsin at this time of year, which is clearing trees. Um, Liz, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Ken. So people may be saying, wait a minute, Campus Sonar, that's not a high school or a university. How does someone who's not running one of those things get on this show? And here's why. Um, I've gotten to know Liz over... Liz, how long have we, how long have we known each other, actually? Um... I'm whispering out of the side of my mouth. Yeah. (laughs) Before real life, but we've been communicating regularly in real life for like a solid three to four years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, partly because you and I have done a lot of work together. And over the years, I have come to really admire the way you think about leadership, you know, leading the team. I mean, really an entrepreneurial startup, but leading the team that you lead and the way you approach your team. I I know that there are really important things that you do that I think would be really great for our listeners to hear because leadership doesn't doesn't stop at certain industries. I think there are things that people do that are portable from one thing to the other. And you're in a higher ed adjacent space anyway. So you're part of the family. Thank you. So tell us just to kind of frame this up so people know exactly kind of who you are, what you do, and you know, what kind of led you to the gig that you have right now? Is that the whole hour? Because I could do that. I know you can. I've heard you before. (laughs) Uh, Well, the gig I have right now is leading Campus Sonar, which, as you said, is higher ed adjacent. We work with colleges and universities to help them find and analyze conversations online so that they can make changes on campus. And I have been in that role for just a little bit over four years now. But how I got there is a, a long and winding road. And I'm so glad that you talk about the leadership climb as a mountain and not a ladder. Because mm-hmm. it's definitely like had twists and turns and obstacles and maybe a little bit of falling backwards. Um, okay. Any falling rocks? I don't think I've been pelted in the face with okay. rocks. Okay. Good. Good. Yet. Good. Um, but yeah, I got here through higher education. So I have always considered myself a higher education professional. Um, definitely didn't know I was going to do that in undergrad. I got my undergraduate degree in interpersonal communication, which has turned out really well. But at the time, it was very much one of those, what, what are you going to do with that communications degree? Right, when I right. tell people that. Um, As someone who works for a liberal arts college, I have no sympathy or empathy for that. Right. Let me tell you, I still go back to what I learned uh, in, in that role uh, or in that, in that program. Yeah. Um, and I didn't you know, graduate from undergrad thinking I was going to go into higher ed, although I did have the the RA experience and the student involvement experience. And I actually graduated hoping I was going to work in an admissions office Hmm. for my alma mater. Which was? UW, Stevens Point, University of Wisconsin. Um, And I, uh, in May, there was a job opening in the admissions office. I think it was, you know, your standard admissions counselor uh, of when I graduated. This is way back in 2004. Oh gosh, so long ago. Please. <laughs> you know, Ken, it's almost 20 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember when I could talk about my graduation year as being almost 20 years ago. Uh, and that was almost um, 20 years ago. 
So I, I interviewed for, for that position and uh, the 2004-2005 job market was uh, rough and yeah. I you know came out with all of my student involvement qualifications and my bachelor's degree and was up against people with master's degrees and PhDs, mm -hmm. um, not unlike some in recent years. Thankfully, I made it as a finalist. I got to speak with the director, but that was the first time I was turned down for an admissions job. <laughs> and I ended up working off campus uh, via the recommendation uh, referral of my faculty advisor. I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked for the National Communication Association because that's what you do with a communication degree. There you go. Uh, and I, I managed their student honor societies for a year. Um, and missed two things while I was out there. DC was great, particularly as a young 20-something, uh, but I missed the Midwest and I missed being on campus. And at that moment, realized that that was what I wanted to do. I had mm -hmm. for a time in junior and senior year, looked at the traditional like student affairs graduate programs and uh, not sure that I ever actually submitted applications to them, but I took the time to visit. Uh, and then I decided that I wanted to go back down that path. So looking for jobs back to the Midwest, back to campus, I ended up back at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, working in a programming and outreach role in university housing. And at the same time was accepted to Marquette's college student personnel graduate program, which I intended to do part time. So came back to Wisconsin uh, and I spent over five years at uh, UW-Milwaukee, which got me through my graduate program. It took me four years to finish my master's degree. And during that time, I got turned down for my second admissions <laughs> job. Uh, this is really what I wanted to talk to your listeners about is how I could never get hired in admissions. Um, <laughs> I've been there myself. Right. Uh, I, knew I, I knew I wanted to move on to something with a little bit more uh, leadership responsibility so the last couple of years, I was selectively applying for jobs, and I had applied for one at UW-Milwaukee. Um, I want to say it was at the assistant director level, focusing on communications and admissions. Uh, didn't make it to a phone screen, so summarily rejected. Boo! Um, <laughs> and kept looking. Um, meanwhile, you know, declared myself done with school forever, and then six months later applied to a PhD program because... <laughs> That is what one does. That's right. I forgot to ask you to introduce yourself as Dr. Liz Gross. Yeah, I use the doctor on Twitter just to avoid some mansplaining whenever possible. But uh, <laughs> not necessary in friendly conversation. Uh, so I applied to a, a PhD program at, this t at the time. And I, I don't remember how old I was, but mid-20s, definitely the youngest person in the program. And I did that on the advice of the current vice chancellor of student affairs at the time at UW-Milwaukee. Uh, she didn't work closely with me, of course. I was still at the coordinator level, uh, but she met me at a few events and I I told her, you know, I'm, I'm done with school. And she looked at me and said, and said something to the effect of, you have what it takes to go further. I think you should consider a doctorate. Mm. So hmm. I did. Um, and my last year at UW-Milwaukee, this would have been 2010, I was accepted into the PhD program at Cardinal Stritch University, which is also in Milwaukee. And um, that is a intentionally a night and weekend sort of program for working adults. Yeah. Um, and settled into that program. And then just a couple of months later, finally found that next job kind of climbing up the leadership mountain. And I became the director of marketing and communications at the University of Wisconsin, Waukesha, which no longer exists as an institution on its own. It has right. since become um, part of an undergraduate college in the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee through consolidations. But at the time, it was a campus of the UW colleges. For folks not familiar with the Wisconsin system listening to this, it's a two-year college. Right. Any other state would call it a community college. We do not. <laughs> we do things differently here in Wisconsin. Exactly. So open admissions, serving a uh, very local population of one to two counties, freshman, sophomore, with either the attention of getting an associate's degree or to transfer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were willing to hire a director of marketing communications who was under 30, likely because I don't think I got a raise to go there. And I had a staff of uh, one and a half people. 
and I believe a discretionary budget of somewhere around $25,000 to do marketing Ooh, for this institution. You can make a big splash there. <laughs> you, you, me- you mentioned You mentioned a raise. Um, I have a feeling we may hear that theme come up maybe a little later in this conversation too. We could certainly talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this time, I was growing my experience. I was not growing my salary. Yeah. Um, but the great things about this role and where I really started, so, so this role is where I started to see myself as a leader, which is good because they hired me to be one. Um, <laughs> good for you. I, uh, the, the, the highest executive on this campus was a dean and I reported to the dean. I was on the dean's council, uh, you know, with the equivalent of our provost um, and um, heads of other areas. I was in this PhD program, which is a leadership program, um, the longest name possible, uh, Leadership for the Advancement of Learning and Service in Higher Education was the name of the program. So I was, you know, at night diving into leadership theory and organizational theory and during the day trying to, you know, develop a full marketing plan for a small campus that had um, big enrollment goals. We were kind of modernizing enrollment marketing at that point in time. I had social media as a part of my job description for the first time. And um, I believe while I was there, I was also tasked with uh, leading the strategic planning process. Oh, geez. <laughs> and I just kept saying yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. able to remember these things right now because I recently found my, um, my blog from back during these times. And I'm like, oh, wow, that is how things happen. So just yeah. saying yes back then. Right. I, I said, yeah. I said yes to a lot of Why things. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I accomplished an okay amount. Um, but there's only <laughs> so <laughs> much, there's only so much you can do when you're so constricted in terms yeah. of resources. Um, and I'm still early on in my experience and it really seemed like, uh, although what they wanted was, a visionary leader who could modernize marketing and communications on the campus. What they needed was somebody who could just develop some really uh, consistent processes and procedures that did not require a lot of incredible vision. Uh, but is that something them- you is that something you caught in the moment, or you see that in hindsight? That is absolutely hindsight. Yeah. In the okay. moment, they were still telling me, "We want you because you understand technology, and you want to do more with social media, mm-hmm. and you want to, um, you know, use all of these things to get more involved in the community and do less like newspaper and billboards and things like that." Yeah. Um, and what they what they really needed, I think, was someone who could just build these solid processes that would keep the machine going, not revolutionize mm-hmm. the machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't excite me. Yeah, that's um, your jam though, the revolutionizing part. Yeah. So I got a lot of great experience there. Um, learned how to interact with folks that were many, many levels above me on an organizational chart. Um, mm-hmm. Met some great folks across the state. And then uh, took like a, a hard turn, left or right, pick your direction, doesn't matter. Uh, and applied for a position working for a student loan servicer as a social media strategist. And Hmm. uh, yeah, I got a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah. So what about, what what were the pieces of it that rang your bell? Um, One, I wanted to dive more into the strategic use of social media to interact yeah, with college students. Yeah, yeah. And that was essentially the the essence of this position. Um, and I, I could see, the, so this was 2012, 2012. I could see social media becoming more and more valuable and more and more core to communications and engagement strategies. And I wanted to do more of that. And I was not going to have the resources or the time yeah. to do that. Doing that on a national scale instead of on a two county scale definitely gave it some some more room for experimentation. Sure, um, I had to be talked into applying for the position. Um, I, I wasn't in a way I was recruited, um, and I ended up applying because I was told I would be given full autonomy. That and and they did live up to that. That happened. Okay, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I would be given uh, a sufficient budget, which they also lived up to. Um, 
I was the parent company's mission and vision, what they were doing to support higher education access and completion was explained to me and I was on board with that. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, when I said, you know, how will my success be um, measured here? There was a, a moment of vulnerability with the person who was going to be hiring me. And they said, we do not know what we're supposed to do in this area. We are hiring you to be the expert. And we expect that you will tell us that. And all right. That just seemed like a phenomenal opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I finally got a race. <laughs> yeah. So not going to say if they would have told me all of those things and then said, we are still going to pay you exactly the same as you're paying now, I would have said, thanks, but I can, I can stick it out on campus. Um, but initially it was autonomy and resources uh, and salary that mm, got mm-hmm. me off campus. And it, it came at a, a bit of a uh, personal, I don't want to say sacrifice, but it, it added, like I had a 20 minute commute and it added an hour to that commute each way and eventually resulted in us putting the house on the market and moving uh, for this job. Um, and th- yeah, but that, that sharp turn is eventually what led to me being able to create Campus Sonar. Yeah, I worked my way up in that organization. I built my team. I brought um, market research under my umbrella. I finished my PhD. I had the credentials then to really kind of put some, um, you know, some, I don't know what word I want to use, but folks trusted that I knew what I was talking about because I could put doctor after it when I was talking yeah. about research. Um, and. <laughs> I, I learned so much about myself during this time. I learned to work mm. within a different type of bureaucracy, um, not an, not a university bureaucracy, but a corporate bureaucracy um, that was a federal contractor. I for, for those learned, of us who have never tasted that fruit, how is that <laughs> briefly? <laughs> how, things how move faster. Diff- yeah, yeah. So much faster. Yeah. Um, yet you get used to it really quickly and then suddenly you're asking why everything is so slow. Really? Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> the the further up you get in the organization, the clearer the desired outcomes become, and they're real. They're um, not that enrollment is not real, but no. you you start to truly understand the the financial impact of decisions that are being made, and you want to talk about the work you're going to do to you know do something better or more or faster, whatever that is in financial terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big thing for me was when I went to get professional development, uh, whether that was, you know, at a conference or a training or whatever that might be, I no longer felt constricted by my industry. Hmm. Um, I went to events where I was talking to marketing or research or social media people from all different industries in- including higher education. Right. Um, so it really expanded, uh, my mindset, my worldview, um, and I, I spent five years with a title of strategist. Um, they kept adding other things that I was strategizing for. Um, and towards the end of that fifth year, I fought tooth and nail to get a manager title. So that was the other thing is you don't just hand out titles in corporate America. There's a, there was a hierarchy. I had to figure out where I sat in it and that it took a, it forced me to be confident in what I did as a professional and not rely on my title as mm-hmm. proof of what I had accomplished. And that had I wanted to go back to campus at that point in time, which I absolutely um, didn't, I was enjoying the work that I was doing. I wouldn't have been able to get back in because hmm. people looked at my resume. I, I tried to enter a search actually for a vice president of communications job at a small liberal arts college, which I can now see in hindsight, I could have done that job. Absolutely. I oh, should yeah. have phone screened for that job. Um, wouldn't give me a second look because why would you hire somebody who is a oh, strategist yeah. to come in and be a vice president? And there was a really kind recruiter, frankly, who was up front with me and told me that. So um, I learned a lot. And then I kind of made my own way by the by the fifth year uh, in this role, you know, social media, market research, all of these things. I was also supporting from a research perspective the new business development initiative of this company. And they were considering different ways that they could build other revenue streams that were not based on student loan servicing 
and specifically were not based on federal government contracts. And I had stayed connected with higher education. I was teaching an online course in higher ed social media measurement. Um, and I was doing social listening as part of my research work in the market research role. And I started to do more speaking and writing about social listening and how campuses could be using it now that I had seen what was possible with a little bit of budget and yeah. a little bit of, of strategic alignment around why you were doing social listening. And I, I, I went to the AMA higher ed conference in 2016 and um, was connected with a colleague who I met through a software provider because I called them and said, I need anyone in higher ed that is using your product because I also was not allowed to present at a conference with my employer. Oh, wow. And my title. So sure. I needed to gain entrance to the conference by having a, a campus co-presenter. Didn't matter if I knew Something them. To vouch for together. you. Yeah. Right. So we became good friends uh, and did some work together afterwards. Uh, but we presented to a packed room, standing room only. Um, I think it was the three ways at the time campuses could use social listening to improve their marketing. This was very much a marketing audience. And well-loved public. Uh, presentation, all of the feedback after it was, this is fantastic. We should be doing this. This makes so much sense. And here's all of the reasons why I can't. And it was budget mm. and resources and talent and, and all of those things. And I came back to my, my day job. I complained about it to the right person who looked at me and said, you know how the business development funnel works here. <laughs> You've been supporting it for the last year. Why don't you solve that problem and put it in the funnel. Ooh. And yeah. Keys <laughs> to the like, castle. Oh. Right. So I had not thought about myself as an entrepreneur at that point. This would have been December of 2016. And um, very quickly, I changed that narrative about myself. And I decided that mm. I had a great idea and I wanted to explore that idea with a little bit of risk aversion by remaining employed uh, at <laughs> this company, <laughs> mm -hmm. which again, also required some give and take. It meant that I was building um, intellectual property for the company, not for myself, but they continued to offer me autonomy and resources. And I pitched the, the business. I went through multiple stages of, of the business development funnel. And uh, 10 months later, we launched a new brand, which was a new business with me and two people in cubes in a corner of this building and no one knew what we were doing or what was going on. Um, and that was Campus Sonar. And the corporation has shifted a little bit, but we are still a division of a for-profit affiliate of a nonprofit company that supports access and completion in higher education. And we are now, uh, today we are 12 people. Um, by the time people hear this, we might be 13. Uh, we have uh, worked with over 75 clients and analyzed conversation of well over 100 campuses. Yeah. And I absolutely see myself as an entrepreneur at this point. And oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> wouldn't hesitate to go start another business. Uh, not that I have really? those plans, uh, but mm. I would be confident in myself this mm -hmm. time. And to bring it back to why it makes sense to even talk to you on this podcast, we continue to do the work that we're doing to support higher education as it moves to a more audience-centric future that can regain the public trust that has been lost over the last few years. Yeah. So that's a long winding road, but I am looking, I'm settled in to this phase where I get to work as a visionary strategic leader who is reimagining things and helping bring that back to campuses who wouldn't be able to do it on their own. Thanks for that narrative, uh, Liz. The, the origins of your social listening expertise, what was the, what was the spark for that? I mean, was that a, a newer phenomenon? Where, where in the development of that phenomenon did you join? That's probably a way to phrase that. Is phenomenon even the right term? But you know, yeah, it was, I, mean, I, I remember I'm hearing about so I it. Call it methodology. Yeah, but, okay. Okay. Um, I think I started doing it in a very shoestring and duct tape with paper clips oh, sure. kind of way at the 
exact same time it was developing. So yeah. I was doing versions of what I would now call um, manual social listening in 2009 at UW Milwaukee. Okay. And I think most of the software companies out there that were kind of pushing social listening really were entering the fray 2008, 9, and 10. Okay. So an early adopter. Yes. Early proponent. Um, and so you you actually had to, I'm assuming, given, you know, I know we've talked before about the, you developing the business, you, you first had to explain to people actually what it is you do. Um for a couple and, of years. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, well, sure. I mean, I can see Facebook and I, I can look at Instagram and, um, but, but to kind of describe the niche that you occupy and then create the understanding that this is something that can actually provide value to your organization. I remember you, you seeing a presentation you gave at one of the affiliate conferences about this is a completely different way of doing market research, for example. Mm -hmm. um, than people traditionally think of. So how, as you're building this business, you're also trying to create an understanding of the need for something like this. What's, what was that like? Yeah. Well, I remember in the pitch when we were determining if this would be a go forward business for the parent company or not, um, there was a slide that just simply said, we're creating our category. There you and go. Yeah. that that's what we had to do. We had to create a category for social listening research in higher education because uh, higher ed had not yet identified it as something that they could do. So I, I knew we had to do it. I had that backed up by research. Uh, we did user studies uh, in, 20, in 2017 um, prior to launching the business. I rented the NACAC email list and the case email list to send a single survey that um, helped us understand what we needed to do. And it became very, very clear that the first one to three years of our business would be education of yeah. the market need. And I was okay with that because from a marketing perspective, I very firmly believed in uh, the content in content marketing and inbound marketing approach that relies on providing marketing so valuable that people would pay for it, if <laughs> you asked. And um, we leaned into that so hard. Um, the first time I think I met you, Ken, was when I was excitedly handing out the hot off the press printed copies of the book that I wrote to introduce the concept to higher education. That's right. The, the Higher Ed Social Listening Handbook. I still have mm -hmm. it next to me at my desk. Mm -hmm. I have one um, too. And that was the, the core of what we were doing. Um, but then it was you know, weekly blog posts illustrating ideas from that book, about 30 conference presentations a year for two to three years to get out and talk to people about it. Yeah. You and were then, ubiquitous. Yeah, it was, it was a good time in my life to be doing it. I can't imagine doing it right now, um, but mm. then it was fine. Um, you know, as many one-on-one -on -one conversations as people would be willing to have with us, spending an awful lot of time sitting in conference booths, not selling, but educating. And then um, I also wrote a second book and brought in some guest contributors as well and guest editors um, that is more broad-based about social media strategy because that was another thing we realized is people heard social and they just made assumptions about what we did. And they're like, oh, well, you're going to manage our, our Facebook accounts. <laughs> No, nope. that is not the case. Um, so we had a, a long-term education-based strategy from the beginning. And it's not like we're going to stop now because some people have started to get it, but it aligned perfectly with the marketing philosophy I wanted us to follow and the sales philosophy I wanted us to follow and how that is coalesced. And um, I see myself as a teacher, even though I've never actually been you know, paid to be one by a college campus. Um, it, it aligns with what I want to do personally. So it, it was required for us to build the business that we wanted to do. We knew that from research and from understanding the market, it was enjoyable for those of us who were doing it because it was the vision that I had set forth. Um, and the ultimate outcome of that is it built trust with the industry. People will read our emails. They will take our calls as long as we continue to hold that trust and don't, you know, do a 180 and start becoming 
cold calling, annoying, high pressure salespeople mm, and break yeah, it, yeah. but which we won't do it. It was a trust building strategy, which really aligns with the ultimate vision of restoring public trust in higher education mm. through audience centric strategies. So Let's it was, there. it was a commitment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. About that commitment. So that first three years where you're educating, 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 were there moments where you wondered whether this was really going to be a go? Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, probably, probably kind of, but, but, and at what point did you, did you have a moment where you thought, Oh no, actually this is going to be a go. Like, could you walk through, can you walk through that? Do you remember those a, moments? Yeah. I'm like, I have to pick a time and I still have them. Um, I like, I don't worry about, um, like I'm honest with my team when I tell them we're doing the right work. We have a solid strategy. We, we have a plan. We are going to grow this business in a sustainable way that meets the expectations of our parent company, all those things. Like I am being honest when I say that I am also being honest when I have a, a bad day or a bad week or a bad month, or we have a particularly um, disappointing call, or I find a new piece of data that makes me question like, oh gosh, well, how am I going to get over this now? Um, that is constant. And I think it comes with the territory of wanting to solve tough problems. And there are so many challenges, not just to growing a small business, but for higher education right now, that I I have a lot of optimism and I still find myself thinking, oh gosh, how's, how's that going to work? But the very, the very specific time that I can recall when I really thought about like, is this where I quit? <laughs> was, yeah. um, that would have been 2019. So, uh, a year and a half into the business. It was early 2019. Um, we had just made a couple of new hires, um, and we were expanding and th that was, gosh, that was a learning experience for me. The people I hired were people that I knew well, respected and had both personal and professional relationships with. And, um, there was a moment where I felt like suddenly all of their well-being and like paying their rent, uh, taking care of their yes. family was dependent on me. And it took me a while to move beyond that. But that was its own moment. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, God. I just talked them into this and now it's on me. Um, <laughs> but that, 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 was, that was a small moment compared to when um, – and, and I, I share this story because I suspect there will be plenty of folks on campus who can relate to it now – Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, one after the other, after the other, a series of staff departures that were unexpected and all occurred within a two week period. And oh. we were a small team at the time. We, we, yeah. we lost like close to half the team and we literally lost every single person who was doing the social listening research, except their manager. And uh, I drove away from work that day oh, and I no. sat at the stoplights and I, I thought like, you know, these people I hired, they could probably go back to their new job, their old jobs. Um, and I could just say that I, I, this wasn't as good of idea as I thought it would be like, screw you know helping higher education i can't keep a staff right right <laughs> like, what am i gonna do um and the thought that went through my head right then was i i had been listening to a lot of how i built this uh mm. podcast <laughs> mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there was a theme on how i built this there's always this moment where like people decide if they're going to quit the business or not and sometimes they do quit it and then they end up find like founding something else, which is why they're on the podcast in the first place. Otherwise they push through it. And I was like, wow, this is the moment. This is the moment where I decide if I'm going to quit or you have that gonna... self-awareness in that moment. I, I, I listened to all the episodes up to that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but man, but, but to be able to pull yourself out of that in that moment and see it for what it was. 
Ah, yeah. That's a, was, okay. Sorry. That's your story. Keep going. Keep, keep, it was, it was, I, want to know like, how I literally, I thought to myself and I could go back. There is Twitter evidence of this. Cause I wrote about it like within a couple of weeks, like this is the moment where I decide if I quit. And I was like, no, I'm not quitting. Like I, I hired those people to do that work. We can hire more people to do that work. I can do that work. Their manager can do that work. We are, we were at the point where, um, you know, this was a year and a half ish and people were not beating down our door yet. We yeah. weren't going to have to not service clients. And, and I decided like, this is where we embrace the fact that we are learning and growing and we figure out what went wrong and how we are going to uh, address that moving forward for different outcomes. And we're going to do it. And I sat down with with the research manager and, you know, she did an amazing exit interview process with all of these folks, um, figured out what was in our control, what wasn't, what we had to do differently about how we portrayed the job, who we hired, all of those things. And we decided to start over. We literally said, like, this is research team 2.0 that we mm. are hiring. And we told every candidate who was coming into the process, like, this is what we're doing. And the first new hire on research team 2.0, when we told her that she was already well through the process, we were looking to hiring her already. We're like, by the way, you're going to, uh, you know how you said you were going to join a team. Well, you're the team uh, <laughs> if you want to take this job and then we'll hire some more people. And her response was, oh my, what an adventure. <laughs> and she took the job. And like, ever since then, those are the people that we've hired is you're in this because you want to build something and we are builders and we're learners and we're not always building the plane while we're flying it, but sometimes we are. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we have all taken on that mentality now. And interestingly enough, although I was terrified of being somewhat responsible for the livelihood of these, um, friends and colleagues that I had hired, it was because of them, I now had a three person management team who could not only execute the vision that we were building together, but they could support me through it as well. Like I'm fairly vulnerable and transparent sure. with, with my team. Yeah. So they knew what we were facing. They knew what the stakes were. Uh, and, and we moved forward and we have had other moments where we, you know, we have unexpected staff departures and all of those things have an impact when you're a team of less than 15 and we move forward with what can we learn and how will we build it differently next time? Or how do we have to find different folks in the roles? Hmm. And I, I'm sure there'll be a harder moment than that at some point, but it was, it was the hardest month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> February of 2019. Um, I can't imagine every time something's hard, I'm like, well, it's not February 2019. And those <laughs> of us who were there were like, yep, definitely better than that. So Yeah. The it's you know, and right now I have that crystal moment where it's like, okay, yeah, I see the application actually for anybody who's in leadership in an enrollment office or an admission office, because even though we may be part of these, you know, large colleges, large institutions, we're running a small business within that college. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you talk about your team of 15, you know, admissions offices, some of them are even smaller than that. But that and you know, my own team here at Lawrence this year, we, I think by the time we're done hiring everybody, we'll, we will have had more than half of the people in their roles for less than one year. Um, and so hearing your mindset and your approach through that turmoil and that crisis, um, is a, at least for me, and I think for listeners too, is a, is a useful one. And definitely, like I said, at the top of the show, portable to other spaces. Yeah. So there you go. Done. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am interested though, cause I, I've often heard you talk uh, about your team and you talk, you know, in some of the meetings that you and I have been in and, um, you know, especially given how work has been over the last 11 months, how do you, how do you take care of that crew? Yeah, I think part of it is really, so off the top, um, kind of how I got past the, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for the livelihood of these people, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. recognizing that, you know, everyone made a choice to be here and no, they are responsible for their livelihood. I am responsible for creating the environment in which they make it. Ooh, yes. Um, so that is huge. I, I no longer feel that like 
huge weight yeah, on my what shoulders. Was the, what was the turning point for that recognition? I, I had told one of my direct reports how I was feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. And they told me, like, that I'm responsible for myself. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Light bulb on. Yep. Like, all right. So cool. Uh, you are responsible for yourself. That makes a lot of sense. I am responsible for the business where you are choosing to make a living. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like, creating that environment, um, I've started to formalize that a lot more over the last year, instead of just being like a great place to work or a place where you feel valued. Um, one of the things that I think has been really important to take care of the team is to set realistic expectations about what I expect work to be. And I actually hmm. created this document that I call the work, the campus owner work philosophy. And it's how we work, where we work, how much we work, um, what is work? Cause that's another thing that I always took for granted. Um, I have never hesitated to walk away from my desk pull out a book relevant to the work I was doing and sit for an hour or two and read something to get inspired. But there are definitely mm-hmm. folks entering the workforce now that are like, Oh God, if I'm not working on an assignment that you gave me, I'm not, I'm not doing working. Work. Yeah. Right. So I, I set expectations about how work, what work is and how it happens. And I have team members who do really, really great work in a variety of settings. Um, so like laid all of that out there And Mm. also included in that is how much do we work? Because I feel really strongly that we can not expect more than 50 hours of work a week out of people who are not being paid astronomical salaries, right? There you go. Um, We are not lawyers. We are not doctors uh, who heal people's ailments. Um, (laughs) We are... (laughs) We are people making a living, making a living at um, you know, salaries commensurate with our experience, but those salaries are supposedly supposed to be based on a forty-hour work week. So, I set yeah. the expectation with my folks that any given week, you know, you might be working between thirty-six and forty-four, forty-six hours. But if you're over forty-five regularly, uh, we need to talk about it because I don't want you overworking yourself or me. Um, not having the awareness that I am asking you to overwork uh, be one of the reasons that you feel like this isn't a good place for you. And I have had to defend that um, outside and inside the company because that is not, uh, particularly in startup culture, but also in folks who are, I'll say like in the 60 plus age bracket, um, that is not the mentality of what folks expect out of their workforce. And there's plenty of people under the age of 60 who would fall into that too, but I think it's much more common um, in that generation. So I wanted to be very, very clear. I I want to build a business that functions adequately at a 40-ish hour. And when we need need to put in a bunch of time, like 50 is our limit. And I went back and I tracked my time um, I tracked my time in all of 2017 and 2018 and the beginning of 2019. And now I am back to tracking my time again, along with every single person in our company as of this quarter. And there was never a time while I was starting a business, even while I was doing two jobs that I averaged over the course of a year, more than 46 hours of work a week. Liz, and can you share this with the that. rest of the world? <laughs> Fine. Um, so the work philosophy is one. Um, and then the other thing I do to take care of my team is pay them appropriately, uh, and explain how and when their salaries will change. I, I also think somewhere along the way, folks have decided or come to the conclusion that like, we should be grateful to have jobs. Whereas (laughs) people who apply for jobs, particularly in higher education and, and skilled industries, They are there to get money. That is why they're doing it. So in addition to a work philosophy, I have a compensation philosophy, which is here is why our salaries are the way they are here. We don't have like 100% salary transparency in that, you know, what your peer is paid, but you know, the pay range for every role, Mm -hmm. we post the salaries for every role. And we're really clear about when increases might be possible. And folks have told me that, 
um, in the past that they didn't feel like there was enough room for growth within that, both from um, you know monetary compensation as well as career growth. So we changed it. And this year we created career progression assessments where folks can grow oh, to nice. multiple levels within their role. Yeah. And yeah. just because I wrote it down once doesn't mean it was like, you know, gospel. In, in, in stone. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and then the other things I do to take care of my team, um, really strive to provide an environment where mistakes are embraced as learning opportunities. Mm. I, you know, not just like fail fast or whatever, but I subscribe to the um, the philosophy pretty heavily of what a learning organization is and how it's built on a team of individuals that are learning together and an organization that's willing to learn is an organization that will evolve and persist. So mm. um, do you create giving, moments for the team to share that? I mean, is that how you, how do you foster that in a culture? I mean, we don't have like fail parties or anything like that. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. But I, I think it'd be pretty clear that like when when any of us comes across something that could be improved, or we see a mistake, or whatever that might be, like it is not called out as a mistake. It is more like, yeah. oh, I saw this. Do we want to change it, or is this something we, we might want to consider? And yeah. it's often done, you know, publicly in Slack, so other people are seeing that. Sure. So um, that's important. I think it's important to provide an equitable work environment and we could talk mm -hmm. about the equity part of it all day long. Um, but I, I think if a leader is not thinking about how the, um, how any sort of systems of oppression or any sort of implied bias is impacting folks on their team mentally and physically, if you're not thinking about that, you're not thinking about your team. Um, and then mm -hmm. the last is like, just to care about them as people. Um, uh, that is one thing that when people leave Campus Sonar, they say, I know people cared about me here. And mm. that's like, ask people questions, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. give them a chance to talk about who they are as a human. They don't have to disclose more than they're, than they're uh, comfortable with, but sure. create spaces to do that. And like little things like this particular, I try to do something every year that's going to be helpful. Like I might give some like really thoughtful holiday gifts one year and then I'm terrible at being consistent at that. So the next year I might not, but this year, um, like I'm sending everyone a birthday card and like writing, like it's a blank card. So I have to actually have thoughts to fill it in. Um, <laughs> just little things yeah, yeah. that people know that you care about them, uh, can do a lot for people's well-being and mental health at work. So a work philosophy, a compensation philosophy, embrace failure or at least don't don't chide failure um and care about people as people and equity and equity super smart that's like <laughs> thank you that's <laughs> i'm also looking at the clock saying oh my gosh like we're almost done <laughs> this liz i thanks for thanks for taking us this far i i, I think you were right we could probably make this a three-hour show now that we're kind of coming up on the end here, I, I think I feel bad that I have to pivot, but uh, I know we both have a hard stop here. Um, it's time for the rapid descent. Let's do it. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's do it. All right, because I really need, I've been wanting to know the answers and I haven't asked you this uh, until now. So I just wanted to make sure I get this in a more public forum. So uh, you know how it goes, right? Eight quick questions, looking for eight quick answers. Number one, I what is your walk? What's that? I will be brief, which is not my strong suit. Well, let's ah, go. We're good. We're good. What's your walkout song? Like a Girl by Lizzo. Okay. What's the best thing you've read lately? Okay. I have to have two answers. I was going to um, say that's not a fair question for you because I know you read voraciously. Uh, and that's that's just a resolution I started in the last two years. Um, I've read the first few books in Kathy Reich's Temperance Brennan series, which is oh. Like it's a two, I think it's a two decades long, um, like crime series. I started reading it this spring when a friend recommended it to me and it got me back into relaxing fiction, Ooh, which I nice. haven't read a ton of. Yeah. Uh, if anyone has watched the TV series Bones, it's loosely yep. based on this. So uh, I'm probably like a third of the way through that series. But um, I mentioned the whole learning organization concept before. If folks want a single book, that I can recommend. I'm currently rereading The Fifth Discipline, hmm. which is about learning organizations and systems theory. 
uh, it was it was a textbook in my doc program, but I'm finding it incredibly valuable to my work right now. Good. And I'm underlining something on almost every single page. Okay. The book is 30 years old and it is still just it like still a works. scathing uh, evaluation of what's wrong in most organizations. So we've obviously not learned yet. Uh, many of us have not. No. Many of us have not. That's that's a better way of putting it. Um, what's the thing you're eager to read next? Uh, my library hold just came up for Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin oh, yeah. Kimmerer. Yeah. Um, a bunch of people recommended it to yes. me. And it combines a couple of things that are important to me, um, horticulture and plants and gardening. Yeah, um, that's right. How was your and, haul this year? Oh, gosh. Uh, hundreds of pounds. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be like a bit of a food gardening book, but also like I am trying to expose myself to more of, uh, history from non-white Americans perspective. And in this one, it's indigenous people, specifically the Potawatomi nation, which is local to where you and I live. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm really interested mm -hmm. or excited to dive into that one. Oh, nice. Um, what's a podcast you particularly enjoy? Where you heard how I built this? Yeah, uh, I've I've fallen off that wagon, uh, yeah. perhaps because I I met my moment. Um, now <laughs> it is work life by Adam Grant. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's on my list too. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite thing to make in the kitchen, Liz? Nearly impossible question for me to answer. I know. <laughs> I love um, so I'm gonna go with a basic. Sorry to vegetarians out there, um, but I'm gonna go with bone broth. Ooh. It's a it's just a labor of love. It takes me at least two days to make it. And then it's a staple for like a whole bunch of other things I cook. So oh, nice. I feel really accomplished when I make a good bone broth. Good bone broth. Um, what do you use to take and keep your notes? I'm super flexible depending on the situation. So at mm -hmm. work, it's, it's a lot of Google Docs. Um, but as of late 2020, I started to consistently take a lot of notes in my Clever Fox Planner. Ooh. Uh, it includes work tasks and home tasks, uh, notes, notes from my leadership coaching sessions. It's got my food preservation goals list in it, meal plans. Um, Clever me, Fox? Yeah, Clever Fox. I've got yeah. a link for you if you need to add it to your, oh, to yeah. your Amazon. Perfect. Yeah, shoot it to me. Um, there's a ton of different versions of it. I prefer the Pro daily okay pro daily and uh are you finicky about the writing implement no the, the colors and the pens and everything change constantly because i can't okay. keep track of them okay uh what's a memorable bit of advice you've received taylor swift once told me <laughs> via her album evermore <laughs> Uh, I love I love this lyric, and I told it to my team. I said, I want to put these words on my wall. Um, never be so polite that you forget your power, but never wield such power that you forget to be polite. Ooh. Oh, Taylor Swift. Well done. Um, and last, uh, it's a presumptuous question. Name an item on your bucket list that you haven't yet checked off. Raising backyard chickens for eggs. Ooh. Okay. You're going to have the full farm out there, aren't you? Someday. I know. How, how big is your garden? Oh, gosh. Uh, about 2,000 square feet. Oh, yeah. Those pictures that you were posting of your tomatoes and whatnot were out of sight. I had My tomato garden was a disaster this summer. <laughs> I don't go to church. But I go to my garden. There we go. <laughs> That's a good one to end on. Uh, Liz, it's been a treat having you on the podcast. Finally. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for allowing the non-admissions professional to have a conversation with you and record it. Liz, you're always welcome at the table. Um, in the show notes, I'll provide links to the articles. Well, uh, the articles. What the? What was the, the clever? Ah, let me try that again. <laughs> I'll provide links in the show notes of all the neat and nifty things that Liz and I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded great doesn't it though we um in the meantime liz may all your big dreams come true at least the good ones and to you dear listener thanks for listening be well and do well